Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Michael Kist. Are you caught me not listening again? Benjamin Solak. You never listen! It's the Kist and Solak Show. Presented by SB Nation and Bleeding Green Nation. You are flying high on the Kist and Solak Show. This is episode 81, brought to you by the fine folks at SB Nation and Bleeding Green Nation. I am your host, Michael Kist. You can follow me on Twitter at MichaelKistNFL. That's K-I-S-T. As always, joined by the best doggone co-host in the game, Mr. Eight-Year Streak Without a Bad Day. You can find his work right now, a lot of it, at thedraftnetwork.com. He is Benjamin Solak. Follow him on Twitter at Benjamin Solak. That's S-O-L-A-K. Ben, how's that cereal? How you doing, bud? It's good. Listen, (laughs) we're recording at 11 my time. I've not yet eaten today. I have no shame for cereal bites in between talking on the podcast. At this point, <laughs> I've even stopped caring about whether or not it's a loud food or a quiet food. Originally, it was like, all right, try to get quiet food, make life easier on Mike. Now it's just like, listen, when I'm not talking, I'm going to be munching. You're going to deal with it in post. You love me and you're patient with me and I appreciate you. How are you, buddy? I am I am doing well. You're right. You went with the quiet food last time and you spilled your smoothie. So I understand you're not necessarily caring as much anymore since the world betrayed you and you trying to be nice, which is how the world works sometimes. Speaking of how the world works, it worked in a weird way for Timmy Jernigan recently. Uh, ben, before we get into the yep. main topic of the show which is the fast-approaching NFL Combine. In fact, it's already here, just not in the nationally televised manner that we know it as. But Pro Football Talk has reported that the Eagles are not expected to pick up Timmy Jernigan's option. This does not come as much of a surprise. Ben, can you give us a bare-bones bottom line of what this means, and then we'll let the folks at BGN Radio pick this up more in depth later on in the week. Timmy Jernigan. The Eagles trade third-round picks with the Baltimore Ravens to grab him, which, by the way, we don't talk about this enough. Uh, the Ravens' earlier pick, 78, became Chris Warmly, who hasn't done Jack Diddley squat for them. <laughs> the Eagles' third-round pick, 99, I believe it was, became Rasul Douglas. So we won that one, too. Um, but anyways, they exchanged thirds with the Ravens. And as a result, Timmy Jernigan comes over on the rookie year of his deal. Now, he plays really, really well during his, his the final year of his rookie deal. And so Philadelphia, as a result, goes to extend his contract. So he was at the end of his rookie deal. I believe it was the, the fourth year. Like, he didn't get He wasn't a fifth-year option player or anything like that. And Philadelphia extended him for four more years for $48 million. So that's, that's, that, that, that's the basics of the extension. Now, that extension had within it $13.5 million guarantees on signing and 25.5 total guarantees. So when we talk about guaranteed money, there's guaranteed net signing and there's total guarantees. Obviously, what's the difference? Well, the the delta, like about 12 million in this case, is not guaranteed at signing. It can be guaranteed at a later point in the contract. And that's what's important. That's kind of the big thing to circle here. 
in early 2018, Timmy Jernigan had an off-field injury. He had, a, I believe, sports hernia surgery, a mm. uh, herniated disc, maybe it was, something like that. Yeah. Anyway, and as a result, you know, with an off-field injury, the way, like, you know, contracts are built, I don't know exactly what it is for Timmy, but with the clauses in place, off-field injuries give teams a lot of flexibility to move on from you, uh, you know, especially because, you know, you're maintaining your health is part of the player's prerogative on the off-season so as to make sure that they're still under contract. So Philadelphia could have cut Timmy Jernigan, just boop, after that uh, early 2018 injury, moved on from him with like, you know, a non-football injury related settlement or whatever. Instead, what Philadelphia elected to do, Harry Roseman, was to keep Timmy Jernigan on his current contract, but heavily void the remaining guarantees via a restructure, right? And so uh, at this time, early 2018, when they restructured Timmy Jernigan, what's said is that, oh, Philadelphia is now off the hook for the guaranteed money of, of Timmy Jernigan's 2019 deal, right? The, 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 his 2019 year in his four-year extension, they're now off the hook for those guarantees. But if you look at Timmy Jernigan's contract, he's still guaranteed $6 million in 2019 if the Eagles were to cut him. They would owe him $6 million. He's not guaranteed $6 million. They would owe him $6 million. The reason for that is because, as always, money that's that's guaranteed at signing, signing bonus money, in, in Timmy Jernigan's case, $10 million, is prorated over the length of his contract. Timmy Jernigan signed a four-year extension, so 2018, 2019, 2020, and 2021, and then also it was in 2017 that he signed it. He was on the last year of his deal. So that $10 million was prorated, so spread across five years, at $20 million apiece, $20 million a pop. So the Eagles owe Timmy Jernigan $20 million every year, until 2021 because of his 10 million signing bonus that's very standard and as is the case with signing bonus money prorated money if and when you cut a player all of the prorated money accelerates onto that year's cap so philadelphia if they were to cut timmy jernigan before 2019 they have 2019 2020 and 2021 left that's three years of two million so they'd owe him six million so the question is what was that guaranteed money that philadelphia relinquished that they got out from when timmy jernigan had the non-football injury we don't exactly know, because if you look at the details of Ch- Timmy Jernigan's extension before his injury, I'm on NJ.com. This was an Elliot Shore Parks article written in uh, uh, 2017, so before the injury. His 2019 cap number was still $13 million. His dead money if cut was still $6 million. So, like, those figures haven't changed, which leads me to believe, this is my theory, the guaranteed money Philadelphia saved was, like, roster bonus money that would have like, uh, become guaranteed if Timmy was, like, on the roster on, like, March 18th, 2019. This is something that Howie's done on previous years. As a matter of fact, he did it on Timmy Jernigan's contract for 2018. Timmy Jernigan's 11 million uh, 2018 salary became fully guaranteed when he was on the roster for 2018. Like, that's how, like, that, 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 that money was guaranteed the moment he was on the roster. And so that changes what happens in terms of, like, a per-game roster, uh, per-game paycheck bonus like uh, uh pay scale it changes what happens if you get injured so on and so forth so it's the nature of like all right if we keep you for this year which we intend to we're gonna fully guarantee all of your money for this year you know all the money we're giving you will be fully guaranteed so it jacks up the guaranteed number on a guy's contract when he signs it so that's kind of what i think the advantage of that is so this is my theory on how how he did it that's that's the real you know meat and potatoes of it if you just want the bare bones <laughs> timmy jernigan signed a four-year deal Mike's laughing at me. I don't know why. We're way past bare bones at this point. Well, that's the thing. No, as I said, I gave you the meat and potatoes. Yeah. That's everything I think I understand. Right. I'm sure there's stuff that I missed. Contracts is always a learning curve. It's always a learning situation. A lot of bones. But if you want, like, you know, the, the long and the short of it, the elevator pitch, Timmy Jernigan signed a four-year extension 
However, at the time at which he got the non-football injury, Philadelphia essentially created three option years for the remaining years of his extension, 2019, 2020, and 2021. Those figures are 11 million, 12 million, and 12 million, the team options, what they would choose to pay him. Independent of those numbers is the remaining 2 million per year that he has guaranteed through his signing bonus. If Philadelphia chooses to not pick up his 2019 option, which it's looking like they won't, they will accrue $6 million in dead cap right. from the three remaining signing bonus years. That being said, they're not paying him the $11 million base and technically the $2 million signing they would pay this year. So it would be 13 to keep him. It's six dead to cut him. You're saving $7 million. You'd like for that to be a little bit more room. You'd like to be a little bit more skewed of a number. But given the fact that Jernigan's probably not going to be healthy moving forward in his career, it makes sense that he's a cut and you save $7 million. I mean, he's the sixth biggest cap hit among defensive tackles in the league right now. Right. And there's just no reason to be paying him that when he's going to be second fiddle to Fletcher Cox. So there you go. And he played 45 snaps last year, and we're not doctors. We don't know the status of his back and everything. The Eagles will have more intimate knowledge of that. And obviously they can – he can test the market, see what he gets, and maybe the Eagles bring him back on something super cheap. We, we, We don't know. A lot of that is unknown. So there's a lot of moving parts there still. But Timmy Jernigan's option not being picked up, not much of a shock. But Ben, today – we are here to talk about the NFL Combine, what it means, what to look for, perhaps some specific times or measurements that we're looking for from specific players, and we might as well start with the basics. It starts today, February 26th, and runs through March 4th. You'll see your first on-field testing on Friday. That's when the running backs, offensive linemen, and special teamers go through their drills, but you'll start to see things like bench press numbers start to leak out as we go through the week, and the whole process can be broken down into yeah. four major categories. Let's start with the first one, and we'll work our way into testing as we go. Number one. Medical evaluations. For example, uh, a guy both me and Ben like, this will be super important for him, offensive tackle Yanni Kajus from West Virginia. We've talked about him on this show before. He's got a torn ACL and a knee sprain in his past. Teams will be very interested in how that knee looks, along with, of course, recently injured players that can't test but need to be checked, like potentials Eagle target Oklahoma wide receiver Marquise Brown with his foot. You'll also learn very new concerns about players that didn't necessarily have a big injury history before. Sony Michelle from last yeah. year comes to mind with his knee issue. Remember, Leighton Vanderesh was rumored to have a medical flag for his neck, but it ultimately didn't discourage the Cowboys from taking him in the first round. And another guy that comes to mind right off the bat is another Sooner. That's running back Rodney Anderson. His injury list is as unfortunate as it is long. 2015, broken leg, suffered playing special teams. 2016, redshirted because he broke a bone in his neck, suffered in practice. 2018, torn ACL early in the season, which required surgery. I love Anderson's game, and I understand, given the injury-riddled season we had last year, that the Eagles fans won't necessarily be in love with me saying that he's a guy that you start to really consider in the fourth round, which is where a lot of these medical flag players start to go late in that fourth. But he's got a second-round grade on a film for me. He'd be my running back, too, fairly easily. Ben, medical checks, I'd be flagged for a back, a neck, a shoulder, an ankle, and a history of concussions. Uh, you'd think teams would find anything on you if they started poking around. Oh, yeah. I have posterior tibial tendon dysfunction, baby. Oh, nice. I have custom-made orthotics that I got to put on the shoes that I wear. <laughs> I was a runner who destroyed his knees at the ripe young age of 17. Uh, I've got real flat feet. Yeah, no, my future is is bleak in the NFL. And nobody was wondering, because I am a senior, obviously graduating senior in college. I am invited to the combine, technically. (laughs) I just don't specify what I'm doing there. Uh, And that being said, 
I think the big guy I'm looking for in terms of medical rechecks for that first day group, that today group, which includes running backs, right? Right. So the whole Josh Jacobs thing is that my man has no tread, right? Well, don't show up to the combine with a groin injury then, because yeah. that kind of throws a loophole into that, right? So I'd be very interested to see his health. Like, if this is just a, 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 a nagging thing from training, okay, good. But if you're going to sell me on low tread, don't be injured. Like, that's, that's I think, a big point of that. <laughs> big thing for him, too, is that the fact that he can't test, can he test at the pro day? We'll see there, because, I mean, that'll be right. big if he can't. And I'm I'm 90% sure Alabama's got an early pro day relative to a lot of schools. Don't they anyway. typically have two pro days, too, though? Because they take a lot of the outside of the area guys and bring them in, like South Alabama. I didn't know. I, I don't know if they do that or not. That's super cool if they do. Now, my second question is this. Mike, When you, what do you look for uh, for specialists at the Combine? Or punters and kickers? Yeah. Absolutely nothing. I don't care. See? <laughs> You get to say that because it's your podcast. I was asked that on the radio yesterday. <laughs> and, Mike, I talked directly out of my butthole. I just said the most ridiculous. I was like, oh, like, well, the most important thing is, like, the interviews and them being asked about, like, you know, the different styles of kicking and what their experience is and, like, what they come from. I just, I, I just complete <laughs> fabrication of the world. Just total lie. Here's what I want to know. Is the punter left-footed? Is he Australian? Check, check. Move on. He's fine. So, like, are like, do they even make them kick? I don't even think they kick while they're there. I don't think they do any. Like, they all the players do positional drills. I don't think the kickers kick. It's gonna be the most. They probably do it at the pro boring day. process for them ever. Yes. So I have no idea how to answer that. So I'm a fraud drafting analyst. But anyway, yeah. So that's that first group. I'll be very interested to see. I have a, a. I have a really. I'm really excited. A feature article coming out about. Caleb McGarry, the offensive tackle out of Washington. I yeah. know uh, you've watched him a little bit, yeah. But anyway, so he had a heart arrhythmia in high school, uh, and he's he had he had multiple ablations on it. It should be cleared away, right? But uh, like last year, you know, Maurice Hurst was a similar situation. The defensive tackle out of Michigan, mm-hmm. and they flagged his heart. So it'd be very interesting to see what happens with McGarry's heart during this testing. It'll be a good time. The second part of this process is the interview process. Uh, this is gigantic for quarterback prospects in particular. We're going to cover that on the next QB SCO show with Mark Schofield, probably talking about guys like Dwayne Haskins from Ohio State who will have to prove themselves on the board after only one year of starting at Ohio State. You also expect guys like Brett Rippon from Boise State, four-year starter, NFL bloodlines to crush that aspect, which could elevate his stock. But again, uh, we have a show for that. We'll get to that later on in the week. It is still important for other players with perceived character concerns. However, for instance... To name a few that the Eagles might be interested in that this process is going to be important for, one is USC offensive tackle Chuma Edoga stood out during the Senior Bowl week and should test fantastically, but I've heard whispers that teams are concerned with his quote-unquote football character and coachability, and that sentiment has been echoed by others in the draft community that have heard the same. Teams will want to know why San Diego State offensive tackle Tyler Romer was removed from the roster after violating team rules in November. Yes. Maturity is a question with Florida edge Ja'Kai Polite and Houston interior defensive lineman Ed Oliver. We'll see how valid those concerns might be. Clemson interior defensive lineman Dexter Lawrence will surely be asked about his suspension for PEDs, which kept him out of the playoffs, and so on. Ben, last year, it was the spicy TMZ story about Darius Geis that was rumored and ultimately never surfaced. And look, we know... Listen, he got into a fist fight with Howie Roseman. Yeah, that's what I heard. That's what I heard. And then it was denied yeah. by everybody. And then there was supposed to be this big embarrassing story for him about something that happened in college. It never got out. We, we know that false rumors get spread by agents to try and elevate their own client stock by proxy. So this is like the cloudiest part of the process from where we're sitting because we're not in the room. And it's hard to tell exactly what's Exactly what I thought. This is the... Oh, cloudiest. I thought you said Claudius and you were making 
making a Roman reference, and I was like, that's such a good point, Mike. <laughs> Look, it, it just what's real, what's not. You get the United Scout quotes, and they could be entirely made up by media personnel for clicks, mm-hmm. or they can be said with a motivation behind right. them. But does anybody stand out for you when it comes to this section as far as the interviews? Yeah, so so firstly, I like that you brought up two offensive linemen, Chuma Doga and Tyler Romer. I thought it was really funny. Uh, last year, Combine hero Orlando Brown, <laughs> legend of the Combine, with his two-second, ten-yard split, whatever it was. Yeah. He talked about, like, why, like, you know... The combine isn't that relevant to like offensive line and like why it's good. He went on a big Twitter thread. It's really good thread. He makes a lot of good points. Some points I don't so much agree with, but he ends it by saying, "P.S. Draft more pricks at the position. It's good for society to have them on a field and not at home," which I think is hysterical. <laughs> and like it's like it's like what we you know we know we were sitting near a team during Senior Bowl weigh-ins. You and I were and. Dalton Reisner went up, yeah. and the team scouts were talking about Dalton Reisner, the soft track out of Kansas State, and they went like, oh, yeah, he's great size and everything, but he's a douche, yeah. right? And we wondered. We were like, okay, good or bad? <laughs> like, that's not – like, in most contexts, you're like, all right, that's a bad thing. Right. In offensive line evaluation, that can really be a positive thing. Like, there's no – you know, like, like it could have been good news. It's good for me. I mean, I boost him if I see that right. nasty in him for sure. Yeah, exactly. So, offensive linemen kind of having that character to them is something that teams look for. Two names that I will circle. One, I don't want to, but I have to. Preston Williams, the wide receiver out of Colorado State. Right. What I know slash have been told about his situation is that, obviously, he's uh, a year at Tennessee – doesn't get along with Butch Jones, doesn't get along with the coaching staff, looks to transfer community college, and then he goes uh, to Colorado State. Uh, Colorado State's coach, Bobo, I believe, had been at the University of Georgia and recruited him while he was in the process. I Don't quote me on that. But anyway, so he had connections there, so he goes there, and then he enters a relationship with a woman. There's a, 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 a domestic dispute that charges are impressed, and then she charges presses for, for harassment or for stalking or something like that because he was continually showing up at her apartment. He was suspended for the team for the year. Colorado State did a lot of time determining whether or not to keep him on campus, keep him on, on the program. Colorado State elected to keep him uh, with the program. They were satisfied with what he was doing uh, to make reparations. I believe the charges were were lessened from like a stalking charge or a harassment charge. Anyway, Preston Williams is one of the players who will not be testing. We will not see him on TV right. so that the NFL can save face, but he will be there in Indianapolis doing everything that's not on TV so that teams can get to know him, which is objectively good news for Preston. Usually, uh, a player with Preston's background would not be able to come to the combine at all. It's good that he gets to sit in front of teams. Obviously, the whole TV thing is an NFL stunt, but whatever. The second thing will be a player that's of interest to the... Uh, the reason I bring up Preston Williams... The reason I bring up Preston Williams is because Mel Kuyper mentioned him as a potential wide receiver target for the Eagles in round one. Now, I don't think the Eagles will go wide receiver in round one. I don't think Preston Williams is a round one player. I don't think the Eagles will like Preston Williams. So I disagree with that take on all three fronts, but it was mentioned as a connection by a guy who's connected. Right. So I'm going to bring it up. Yeah. The other guy would be Evan Worthington, the safety out of Colorado. Now, now Worthington is another player. Right. A full suspension for a, an unspecified violation of team rules. Now, the fact that Worthington is invited and able to participate in the combine indicates that from what the NFL knows, this likely does not have anything to do with domestic violence. Or anything that would then put like you know a, a, a big black mark on the NFL's glossy public image regarding relations to women <laughs> for their athletes. Right. That being said, uh, a full year suspension for violating team rules for a player who was objectively a super talented guy. Uh, you know, it's undisclosed. This is something that that, that that often happens with college teams. A full year suspension is is surprising. Usually, teams are very low on their suspensions. They lowball their suspensions, especially for their good players. That's just the reality. Worthington was out for a whole year. Uh, I have not been able to get from anybody a sense on why. 
which is very peculiar to me. And I've heard that since, like, he, he's had a kid since then, and I've heard that yeah. things have been better. Right. I mean, yeah. So I know I know from speaking with Evan and speaking with people about him that he, like, was a putz. Yeah. And, like, did a bunch of stupid stuff and was an idiot. Like, had a kid, had came to a reckoning, had to shape up, and he has, and he's getting his life in order. And that's 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 a, a common thing that we see for NFL draft prospects. And myself. The fact that I can't find why he was spent for a full year really freaks me out. Right. It's going to be very interesting to see how he interviews as well. But he makes a lot of sense for the Eagles, given what they need at a safety position and the time they have to develop a piece. So... Those are a couple names that also stand out to me in terms of interview importance. Love it. Coming up next on the Kiston Solak Show 81, we are going to dig into measurements and positional drills, what to look for, what's important, for whom it's important. That's coming up next here on Bleeding Green Nation. We're back here on the Kist and Solak Show. We are talking NFL Combine. Ben, let's get into the measurements. We're talking height, weight, arm length, hand size, basically the meat market portion of the event, everything Girth. that you don't possess. Uh, there's a lot of different... Di- hey, I've been working out a lot recently. <laughs> that's nice. That's nice. Uh, we could take this in a lot of different directions. Maybe we should start with offensive tackle. Uh, ben, having 33-inch arms seems to be the benchmark to be a tackle in the NFL, unless, of course, you're Joe Thomas. Uh, but that's going to be important for guys like top-rated prospects like Alabama tackle Jonah Williams, who has length concerns. Mm-hmm. Those concerns popped on tape against Clemson when dealing with Cleveland Farrell, Furl, excuse me, Cleveland Furl. We've talked about that before. Uh, is there anything specific that you're looking from a measurement standpoint? Because there are also like weight concerns for defensive linemen like Polite, all of our guys we've talked about, FSU's Brian Burns, right. Ohio State's Draymond Jones, and even talking about safeties here for a moment, Deontay Thompson, the safety at Alabama, who's listed at 199 pounds. I don't know if he hits that, and some teams won't take safeties under 200 pounds. He won't. I find his weight slash time speed dynamic particularly fascinating because I have questions yeah. that must be answered in that regard. Now, if he comes in at like 185 so we can run in the low 4.5s or high 4.4s, it's still a problem. And vice versa, if he comes in at, say, 198 and runs high 4.5s, it's also a problem. So, Ben, what are you looking for from the measurement perspective? There are certain measurements at certain positions that particularly interest me because they very closely mimic the physical actions needed and taken in the way the player plays the position, right? Like when we talk about offensive linemen, I am interested in what they do in the very short area drills, vertical jump, broad jump, 10-yard split, three-cone short shuttle. Give me all the stuff that's in short, small areas. I don't really care about their 40-yard dash. Offensive linemen don't really do things in a straight 40-yard line. Really, nobody does. Like, wide receivers are the closest, but even then, they're rarely running 40 yards straight down the field, right? When we talk about correlation, it's not like, you know, you're going to see a ton of tables that pontificate on the degree of correlation between the success of a draft prospect for his position and a certain measurement and how well he measured percentile-wise. Take these with, with as large a grain of salt as you can find. Hmm. It's very The first being, it's very difficult to statistically quantify how successful a player is. Like, that's a hard thing to do, right? Uh, a lot of the, the tools that measure how successful a player is are heavily reliant on playing time, which is conditional on draft stock, which now has totally skewed your numbers because the better players get drafted first, not because they're good <laughs> athletes, because they have good tape. Yeah. So we've already caused that problem. The second thing is this, and I brought up the offensive line 40-yard dash example for a reason. There is a high statistical correlation between offensive linemen's success in terms of, like, games started, games played, and 40-yard dash. Which is wild, yeah. And if we don't take a moment to <laughs> stop and think about why... We can fool ourselves into believing that fast offensive linemen are good offensive linemen. And that's really something we have to be afraid of, right? And this is tricky because 
this logic that I'm approaching this with allows me to pick and choose which, which correlations I think matter and which don't. And that's something that a lot of analytic folks are afraid of. You shouldn't pick and choose which data matters to you. The data that's statistically relevant should just matter in general. And it does. But there's, there's, there's a character here. There's a nature to it. There's, there's a, a nuance we have to understand. Offensive linemen are slow because they're big boys. They don't run very fast. They also don't practice running because they're big boys and they don't run very fast. And it's not their job. It's not what they do. They don't have to outrun people, right? But the natural athletes of the position, the ex-tight ends, Garrett Bradbury, the ex-quarterbacks, Titus Howard, the guys who, who have just a better athletic background, who are more better natural athletes, are just going to run better 40s, period, because they're going to get out of their stance quicker when they're sprinting in the first 10 yards. You know what I mean? They're just going to be able to maintain their speed better. They've just spent more time running other than like the hog mollies who've been playing, you know, left tackle since seventh grade. Like this is just, that, that's the reality. And so the more athletic guys tend to have better 40s. The guys who aren't great athletes spend all their time working on the vertical jump, which really matters. Yeah. They don't spend any time on the 40. The delta between the good 40s and the bad 40s is really big, and the statistical correlation is strong. It's not that fast offensive tackles are good. It's that good athletes at offensive tackle tend to run much better 40s than the bad athletes. And then good athletes tend to be better football players than bad athletes. And so we have a confounding <laughs> variable. There's that variable Z that kind of screws with the relationship between X and Y. And the variable is just pure regular athleticism. And so when we talk about what drills matter and why testing matters, what's required conditional, what's required before you step into a statistical analysis of the correlation between testing times and NFL success is an understanding of what the drills are meant to replicate, what they're meant to measure, and how that affects on-field play. And this matters tremendously, even within positions. Slot receivers and X receivers, the the, the degree to which their bench press, their three cones matter differently. Correct. And that, that's not going to be expressed. So, so you simply have to know and understand what you're looking for. There's really like, I, 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 I don't want to make a blanket statement and say like, oh, all combine statistical analysis is wrong. But you have to know what you're looking for and why it matters. Like it's really like, there are very good models. They're like, all right, well, when corners are this tall, with this great of arm length, with this good three cone, they're much more likely to be successful. That's great because those are three things that really matter to me yeah. about corners if you came to me and you were like listen a corner with this bench press and this broad jump is going to be good i'm gonna be like well we're probably experiencing confounding variables there because i just don't see broad jumps and i forget the other one i said matter as much for for corners you yeah. know what i mean so this is is it, it's so so important to understand that you have to filter combine uh, analysis and the results of players testing you have to filter that through an understanding fundamentally of not only what's required to win at positions in the NFL, but what specifically is required for that player. Like when big wide receivers come in slow, it's really okay. Obviously, faster wide receivers are better, but if they if their game isn't predicated on speed, it's going to be fine. We're all going to sleep at night. You know what's good? Colton Miller's NFL combine testing. 40-yard dash, you're at a yeah. 495, 94th percentile. Broad jump, 99th percentile. Three cone, 94th. 20-yard shuttle, 91st. You know what was bad? His tape. Now, you see that testing and you go, okay, he's obviously a freak athlete. Let's go back and check the tape and see if that comes out on film. Maybe I'll see it with new eyes. And then you check his tape and you see that he's got this nasty false step as he's coming out of his stance. And you go, 
His athleticism doesn't matter because he's not using it to be more effective as an offensive tackle because he's hindering himself with his technique. And, and you'll see that throughout this process. So it's not to say that if a player tests through the roof that we're automatically going to move him up the board, but we are going to check it. If, if a player comes in with looser hips than we expect, like the can't like a couple of years ago, Kansas State edge, Jordan Willis, three cone is a is a great time for yeah. edge defenders. Great so, example, Mike. Yeah. Great example. To measure Ben and all that stuff. And if I remember correctly, I'm going to pull this up right now as I'm talking. But Willis, who turns and bends like a dump truck, he tested in the 95th percentile for the three cone. 6.85. That's a fantastic time. Oh, I was going to guess. I was going to guess 6.81. Okay. <laughs> Never saw it on tape. Never saw it on tape. So that's something that I remember that specific example made me go. Wait, no way. I never sell that on tape from him. Go and check the tape. It's not there. So some testing can, you can get false, false results out of those. So definitely some different examples of what we think is important, but context is still needed. And look, I talked about this on Fireside Chats number eight with Kyle Krabs of the Draft Network. But for me, like if we're talking running backs here, 10 yard splits within the 40 yard dash matter more than the 40 yard dash for running backs. I'm also looking for broad jump and vertical jump to measure short area explosion because all three of those factors measure into burst. And you could really apply that to a lot of positions where it's not so much the long speed that's crucial. It's the ability to close distances in a beat. And that beat is the difference between short gains and long gains, both for you know offensive players and defensive players. So two players that I'll mention that this will be important for with those areas, running backs, Devin Motor Singletary from Florida Atlantic, who, let me tell you, I just watched his game against Marshall to revisit some of his tape, and I wanted to watch some more Malik Gant. He had a rough game that game, by the way. Singletary took over that freaking game and closed it out. He was light out that game but he's got some questions to answer about functional yes. burst to win at the second level if he runs around a 155 10 yard split or even just give me under 1.6 10 yard split count me in because the rest is gorgeous and that checks that box for me that i have a serious question about same goes for and we've talked a lot about him iowa state running back david montgomery who had only two gains of over 30 30 plus yards last year but it's not so much the home runs that i'm concerned about i want to see that functional burst to win at that first and second level that's really important to me so those jumps the right. 40 times will matter a lot for these the jumps and the 10 yard splits will matter a lot for these running backs and we'll see how that all plays out uh ben does anything else stand out for you do you want to comment on something i just said or do you want to bring up another drill that you find uh, important or not important yeah singletary worries me i want to like him a lot i don't like him a lot running backs if you can find which ben did a bet for the field nobody coming in under 4-4 take it i don't think we get a single under 4-4 runner in this class unless we get like one of those situations there was like keith marshall that georgia kid like a couple years ago i had, like no idea who he was and he came in around like a 4-3-9 or whatever what about darrell henderson do you think he's under 4-4 or no no Okay. No, 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 no. I think I think he's he's got burners. I think he's a four four runner. I don't think he's gonna have that big open long track stride within the first ten yards yeah. to really get up to a full galloping speed that you need to get in under four four. Right. I, Henderson and Travion Williams are my guess for the two who will be fastest. Uh, Travion uh, out of Texas A and M is another guy who can really burn. If you listened to me, you would have taken the over on Kyler Murray's forty yard dash time the second it dropped. Uh, if you haven't yet. As long as it still is a bet you can have, take it. Because 
if Kyler really is coming in at over 200 pounds, coming in at over 205, number one, he's going to run slow if he even runs. And number two, he probably isn't even going to run in the first place. Which reminds me, if you can get a bet that's fastest 40-yard dash type for quarterbacks, take Trace McSorley out of Penn State. Yeah. Do not take Kyler. They're trying to sucker you. It's not going to be Kyler. It's going to be Trace. DK Metcalf's going to have one of the best days of the combine ever. <laughs> he's a freak, if dude. what we're hearing is true. He's going to be a freak. I, I still, if he, I still, hold on. Patently, if he tests at four three, if he, no, I still, I still, I, I just refuse to believe it. Like <laughs> other people have bought it and I've been told it from multiple people. And I'm just like, I will believe it when I see it. I refuse. I just can't. If he runs a four three eight DK Metcalf, how much does he weigh? Like two thirty? He's, he's going to, no, he, so he probably weighs like, you know, like last week, two thirty. He's going to come in at like two twenty four. Right. Super. And he's probably going to run. Low four four. If he runs four three eight, I'm just gonna throw my television out the window. That's ridiculous. Yeah. If he if he comes in under four four, I need you to understand that there'll be like four receivers under four four. There'll be like Miko Hardman, who's like a buck eighty. Right. There'll be Emmanuel, Emmanuel Hall, Hall, who's like a buck ninety five. There'll be like Alex Wesley, the Northern Colorado kid, or some like small school guy who's super fast. Yeah. And then there'll be DK Metcalf, who's literally thirty five pounds heavier than the rest <laughs> of them. And I will lose my mind. What's crazy is is he gonna run right after Terry McLaurin, thinking it because like they go in that alphabetical order. If they're in the same right. group, can you imagine Terry McLaurin running a four four flat at his size, and then Metcalf comes in there like freaking the Terminator? Exactly. <laughs> it's the same clock. Oh man. <laughs> Let's see. Other guys, I've been told Byron Murphy out of Washington's really going to test well. I've been yeah. told he's going to be super quick. What about the bench press? Who, who, do, who do you have hitting 40? Because I think Dalen Mack, the interior def- defensive lineman out of Texas A&M, might hit 40. I think Nate Davis is going to throw up 30-something. Yeah. Tell me. Yeah. I I think I think Nate Davis is going to get up there and chuck it. I don't know anybody else is going to hit 40. Not off the top of my head. My uh, Dogby's not invited. Shoot. That would have been my bed yeah. of heartbeat. Have you seen Michael Dogby bench press before? No, I haven't. Is he just an animal with it? Oh, man. This Temple, he's not invited. This Temple defensive tackle, he's one of the single-digit players for Temple, which, which uh, you know, Temple tough, like our, our Temple fan listeners will know about that, in part because he's an insane weight room guy. He can bench like 695 or something. It's crazy. Mm. Uh, he can throw it up like no business. Here's a really interesting, fun thing to watch. Scale of 1 to 10, generally. How good of an athlete is Taylor Rapp, the safety out of Washington? Scale of 1 to 10. Actually, let me pull up my grading and let me see where I have him. Actually, I have safeties right up because I was watching safeties this morning. I was watching Mike Bell from Fresno State. Liked his tape. Good player. Really liked his tape. Listen, if you're a 6'3 safety who's not slow, I'm interested. I don't need to know anything else. And he can, Yeah, he can come down and hit. I have Rapp as a 4 out of 7. That's what I call solid. So I think he's a solid athlete. Straight line. I want to see... His his flexibility. I want to, I want to see him. You know how we, right. how well he can. So I'm very glad you brought that up yeah. because the Washington Huskies hold a junior Husky combine every spring, and he crushed the three. It doesn't make any sense. Typically, is very accurate, yeah. right? Typically, like not like very accurate. It's obviously like a little more. Um, it's it's good. They're going to be generous, but typically like, the numbers translate pretty well. Rap ran the short shuttle in three eight eight. Yeah, and then ran the three cone in a six five seven, which is six five seven bonkers. If you don't know three cone numbers, which, which, that's which like, like I'm elite. pretty sure the top time last year for safeties was six five seven. Right, six five seven. Ben, I saw this that. Guy. I lost my mind because I'm like, that's my major. If he comes out and uh, look, he can run a six seven or 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 whatever. If he's in that area, right. I'm like, check that box, and his athleticism score will move up, and that'll bump up, up my board for sure. That's crazy. So he's a guy I'm really interested in watching. Another guy that I'm really interested in watching, not for great reasons, 
is Noah Font, the tight end out of Iowa, who's been, like, for the past 18 months, we've been hearing about how great of an athlete he's going to test, which is probably still true, but here's my thing. If he comes in at 240 flat, and he is super fast and super explosive, and then Dawson Knox out of Ole Miss comes in at 250 and puts up slightly worse numbers, well, density adjustment, Font's not going to be any better than Dawson Knox. And I like Knox. TJ Harkins is going to come in at 255. Run a four six mid, jump thirty four inches. <laughs> These are, you know that's going to be great athleticism for his size. Like Font might test the best out of all the tight ends, but the problem is he's also going to come in one of the lightest. Yeah, I think he's a great athlete, but on field I don't really see a unbelievable, incredible athlete, especially for his size. And so I'm really interested to see what density adjustment testing relative to weight does for his numbers. Here's here's a question for you. These are two corners that I watched recently. Joe John Williams yep. or Joe Juan Williams, cornerback, Vanderbilt. Justin Lane, cornerback, Michigan State. Arm length for cornerbacks, they're going to be on a lot of teams' boards because they're going to have yeah. long arms. And we kind of skipped past the the measurement part of it as far as like arm length, hand size, like all of that stuff. I think they're going to definitely check those boxes. Lane is definitely long. He's got those long, leggy transitions, which I kind of worry about. What do you think about their 40 times? Because my concern with Joe Juan, other than his technique, which is – bad and, and needs development and he's a press corner that we can't press but we talked about it i have concerns about his 40 i think he runs high four fives justin lane i saw him get beat initially by terry mclaurin a guy that we talked about lost in the transition but kept pace after that i think he's got really good deep speed or not really good but definitely more than serviceable well what maybe what are some standouts what are your thoughts on that from the from the cornerback position like, if you had asked me most overrated drill for position, yeah. 40 for corners would be up there for me. Yeah. Here's the thing. If you're concerned, though, can they carry routes vertically? NFL teams care about that. Which, carrying routes vertically is, is, is to me, so much so technique before it is anything else. You're because right. And that's what I'm saying. Lane lost McLaurin because of technique early, and then he's legging on top of it, lost in the turn. I think I think it's objectively good to have recovery speed. Right. Like like true recovery speed, which means you're running in the four fours. And then like after that, like low four fours, after that it's like everything is folly. Because if we like flip the script and we talk about wide receivers, what do we always hear from wide receivers? If he's if he's even, he's leaving, right? right? Like, oh, if I get even with the corner, just throw it to me, right? If you get him in your back pocket, you're good, right? So it's like if you win at the release point to get at least even with him you're you're fine like you win like you've created a throwing window because the second a corner is in hip pocket to lower like to further back it needs to be an unbelievable play like daryl revis level of technique to get connected stay connected flip the head locate the football and attack the football especially because the assumption is you're giving up some size because you're playing corner yeah Right, obviously, and for guys like Justin Lane and Joe Williams, that might not so much be the case because they're bigger guys, which is why size helps with recovery. Hashtag Rasul Douglas, <laughs> which I mean, Rasul ran a four five nine. You know what I mean? Like he, this, this is it's a very similar mold of player. A, a corner having recover, recovery speed is objectively good, but I prefer the guy who just doesn't need to use recovery anything. I get that. Which obviously you still need to check the box. Every corner needs to be able to recover because that's part of playing the position. I just don't think long speed is a big aspect of that of that process. You know what I mean? And so to me, like, I'll put it to you this way. I look at Joe and, J- and Lane a little differently because I think Joe is just an off-man corner who's long. I think Lane can actually play in the line of scrimmage, right? right? Like you talked about, like, Joe can't really press. And so for Joe I'm probably a little bit more interested in terms of his transitional quickness and what it's going to look like him playing 
cover two zones off man and closing downhill. Lane will be a guy who I want him to have like a decent or 40 so that he can actually recover. And as you alluded to, that's something that you think is stronger in his tape as compared to Williams tape for Vanderbilt. So okay. yeah, sure. But at the end of the day, control the guy within the first five yards in the contact window. We ain't even having this conversation. Yeah, you know what I mean? Exactly. And Lane's tape has plenty of examples of that. He controls the red line regularly, wins at the line with his press, with his patient feet. Two last guys I want to talk about before we get out of here. Guys that I think are going to hit in the four threes for the 40, and people are going to start paying a little bit more attention. Kendall Sheffield, the cornerback at Ohio State, has no idea what he's doing. He's going to run in the four threes. He's Listen, he's like Detroit Apke of this year, in my opinion. I just I'll just say this right now. Yeah. If somebody if you if you Venmo me five dollars, I will send you a list of the draft analysts who will tweet out that they've always liked Kendall Sheffield <laughs> after he runs a four three. Yeah. Even though his tape is bad, his tape is awful. Yo, Ethan Young was just uh, promoted to director of player personnel for UCLA. UCLA nice yo ethan is my dude, dude is my age that's crazy he's so i met him at a uh, mobile last year man we had some drinks he's yeah, a good what dude a stud. that's awesome good for him shout out ethan young a uh, member of the draft community that has parlayed this very quickly into a very nice yeah. position at ucla that's sick oh that's so cute look at his little photo ucla i'm so happy <laughs> okay anyway you had another guy you wanted to bring up oh yeah Nasir Adderley is going to run the four threes, brother. Nah. Bank it. No. Bank No, he's it. not. He's got range, brother. What are we putting on, Nasir? Okay. Actually, before I make a bet, I'm going to ask, is this your tape or are you sourcing right now? This is tape. Tape? He's not running a four three. And he's also said that he expects to run in the four threes. Now, Man. a lot of players say that they expect to do... About to say. Right. I expect to run in the four threes. I think he hits four three nine on the dot. All right. I will buy you a vending machine item of your choice. If he runs below 4-4. That's a bet. That's what I'm here for, man. No. The vending machine items. He's not going to do it. He's the only reason you're here. Player. It happens every year. We watch a player run around against FCS competition. We all get convinced he's a great athlete. Only way, only time it didn't happen was Dallas Goddard when I was right that he was a great athlete. Pretty much when I say it, I'm correct. Everybody else is wrong when they you say know, it. You know, it was him running against uh, air. It was him tracking from, I believe it was far hash to sideline. Uh, like a, a, a no. throw from Easton Stick that went up there. And that was the that was the first play I saw. Where it was like, "Yo, dude can scoop." Oh, you know, the was play. that was that the one where he 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 used like the the step technique and he was just like flipping his hips back and forth and walking down. That was a really good play. Yeah, yeah. So he could. That was a good play. He's not four three, but it was a good play. Four three nine. Can run the four fours. Book it at the very most a four four two. Now, yeah, I won't get a vending machine item for that, but I'm saying I think he's in that range for sure. Bank it. Why am I? Why am I being all cowardly? Bet on it. Four three nine. This year, Adley. Let's go. Ben, that is going to do Your it funeral. for the Kist and Solak Show NFL Combine Preview Extravaganza. Would you say goodbye to the gentle, gentle listeners before you board that sweet, sweet plane and get your butt over to Indianapolis? I'm taking a bus because I live like three hours from Indy. All right, Matt. Uh, but thank you as always for listening to the Kist and Solak Show here on BGN Radio. We do appreciate you swinging by. Uh, as always, I've been Benjamin Solak on Twitter at Benjamin Solak. That's S O L A K. He's been Michael Kist on Twitter at Michael Kist NFL. That's K I S T. Tomorrow we don't have a podcast. It's just that's what I usually say after that bit. Uh, we'll definitely do a podcast or two while I'm in Indy. Mike's obviously still in Florida, breaking down potentially uh, some Doug Peterson, Howie Roseman presser quotes. I'll be there for that, which will be a blast, as well as potential Eagle targets and how they perform risers and fallers after the NFL Combine. If you enjoyed the show, please go ahead, rate, review, and subscribe. Excuse me, that's the cereal from earlier. <laughs> Please go ahead and rate, review, and subscribe on whatever app you listen to your podcast if you enjoy the show. As Mike said, 
likely more on Timmy Jernigan as well as all contract news front uh, from BGN Radio main show with Brandon Legao and Mayhew Rain Brandon. and John Stolness. Thank you so much for listening. Have a good one. We all we got. We all we need. Fly Eagles Fly. Yeah.